I'm your host, Connie Aline, and thank you for tuning in to The Fly Behind the Wall, a podcast created to change the narrative about the realities of life in the United States prisons and jails. My goal is to return the systematic destruction of American lives back to the public conversation. Welcome to The Fly Behind the Wall, and thank you so much for joining me again. Today, we will explore my early learning behind the wall. I mean, I learned from my colleagues, from officers, captains, lieutenants, the wardens, the depth wardens. I mean, I learned so much from the inmates. I mean, school was always in session. I always had pen and paper ready because I was learning so much about life, about people, human behavior. I mean, I learned about just myself, you know? Um, So thank you for joining me. And I do hope that my reflections and insights today will help to broaden your understanding of correctional life for employees, for inmates, and how all of this impacts everyone, even those who aren't so close to the issue. Learning behind the wall is a very interesting topic because there's so much that you learn in an environment unlike no other. As a discharge planner, I interviewed hundreds of inmates. I mean, inmate encounters were a key performance metric. I mean, let's explore some of those lessons, right? So first for me was authenticity. It's a real buzzword these days, but without being authentic in this environment, You couldn't get anywhere. When the inmates think you're fake, you will get nowhere with them. They might go along with your plan because they have nothing else to do. All the, all the while, like wasting your damn time, right? Because they have no intention of following through with this plan. When they sense you're inauthentic and can see that like there's something just kind of off with you it becomes very difficult to get factual information from them. And in that interaction, if you don't stop them from spinning and call them out on their nonsense, you become, in their minds, the one you can get over on. Being that person will make your correctional experience a very difficult one. At the end of the day, your credibility and reputation amongst the inmates, your coworkers, custody and other civilian staff is invaluable and has to be protected at all costs. For the officer and the and the colleague, well, I want to say from from the officer and the colleague perspective, the same thing applies, right, with respect to authenticity. The last thing you want to be known is as a, is as a phony. It causes people not to trust you and not to like you. Folks are more likely to turn a blind eye on you as opposed to having your back when situations get thick. I mean, I recall this incident where this female officer, she thought she was the best thing since sliced bread. And she might have been. That's not even like a point to debate. You know, she walked in like she was too good. She had her head high, her nose up. It, it, it was just... It was just too much. That's what it was, right? Um, to add insult to injury, she was disrespectful towards like the inmates. 
and towards her colleagues, like her male counterparts. She she wasn't particularly friendly with anybody, right? On this particular night, she came in being herself, right? Which, I mean, in her case, wasn't a good thing. Um, she got on post and she fell asleep. To her surprise, when she woke up, she was covered in semen. Now, what the... How in the... All right, that's a a really extreme situation. And certainly there was an investigation that was ensued and there were many questions to be answered. Like, where were you sleeping on post? How did you, how did the inmates get out the cell? How long were you sleeping? Like, how deep were you asleep? Where was your partner? Like, were both of you asleep on post? Like, you mean to tell me you didn't, hear or feel these inmates releasing on you? I mean, most importantly, your partner, whoever had eyes on you in the bubble, allowed this to happen to you while you were asleep. Either way, a bad attitude and crappy demeanor does little for you. Discernment. Walking in there, I was green, 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 green. I wanted to help everyone. I wanted everyone to get the benefit. Like, I wanted to give everyone the benefit of the doubt, right? No matter how elaborate this story was, I learned to see things for what they were and not what I wanted them to be. After hearing some of their stories, putting in all the work to get their discharge plan all coordinated for them to leave on a Friday only for me to come back in on Wednesday and see them in intake? Yeah, I learned pretty quickly. The job was not black and white. It was not guilty, not guilty. It was not right, wrong. Working with them, it was right and almost right. There was some truth to their stories. You needed to be able to extract the truth and get to the meat of the matter. Usually, if I I said, listen, what do you really want? Why are you in my office today? I could get a straight answer. Miss Eileen, all right, I'm trying to get housing near where my baby mom's lives because I want to have access to her and my daughter. I'd say, okay, because I could work with that. But I'd ask the next logical question. Does she have a restraining order against you or order protection against you? A question that usually causes them to pause because they don't expect you to ask that. And honestly, they probably never even thought about that. Either way, discernment is crucial to navigating and being able to get your job done. But there is absolutely nothing more important than empathy for another human being suffering. This is the sheer reason for my journey. Years and years of inmate interviews never jaded me. With each story told, I tried to step into their shoes to see what would I do if I was in that situation? Would I have done something differently? 
would I've had known would I would I have even known what to do? But hindsight is twenty twenty. I wasn't there to Monday morning quarterback their lives. Empathy, the ability to step into the shoes of another person, aiming to understand their feelings and perspectives and to see or to at least use that understanding to guide our actions. For me, the key was learning how to empathize without over-identifying or blurring any professional boundaries. See, you have to remain grounded in your professional scope as the reality is that your actions could be sending unintended messages to the inmate as well as custody who are monitoring your interactions and they only need to express a concern, like a concern about you. There's an administrative directive that addresses fraternizing with inmates, period. Becoming too familiar with them is just not allowed. And I mean, so as service providers, we have to learn to do the dance, right? Gaining enough trust to have a meaningful encounter while maintaining professional boundaries and not in any way compromising yourself. There's so much that we take for granted in the free world. So for example, if you're seeing a patient and they begin to cry for some reason, an acceptable response would be to ask what's wrong, offer a tissue, provide a cup, maybe rub a shoulder, whatever. Same situation in the correctional environment. You may ask what's wrong and offer a tissue, but you're doing a quick mental assessment of suicidality. And then you're gonna make sure they're being seen by a mental health provider when they walk out your office. You could give a word of encouragement but there's definitely no touch on the shoulder or hugging going on. Like that's just not happening. He needs or she needs to collect himself and keep it moving. You might give him or her an extra minute to just get those emotions in check because that environment isn't one where you wanna walk around crying. It's immediately connected to either anger or weakness. I mean, overall mental instability kind of makes you a target of sorts. As a service provider, like you have to be able to disconnect, right? It's so easy to judge, but it's it's more difficult to understand walking in those shoes and seeing someone going through something and as a provider your hands are kind of tied, right? The person is safe, you know, they're stable, as stable as they're going to be, but there's nothing you can do to make the situation better necessarily if it's outside of the scope of your work practice. So I, I, I read this book the other day um, by Do Zantamata, and there was a quote in there that really just resonated with me, and it said... Through judging, we separate. Through understanding, we grow. I did a lot of growing in corrections, um, to say the least. So let me lighten the mood a little bit, right? One of the most interesting but gross things I learned 
was how to make drinking alcohol. Inmate shows up to a session clearly tipsy, though he was trying desperately to hide it. He didn't want nobody to see he was under the influ- under the influence, but he came to the door glossy eyes and all. I was like, dude, dude, are you good? He looked at me. He's like, yeah, 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 Miss Aline, I'm good, I'm good. I couldn't help but laugh inside. I was also curious, so I asked. I was like, what you drink and where did you get it from? He's like, come on, Miss A. Why are you going to ask me that? You know I'm not going to lie to you. I was like, oh, okay, if you say so. He was like, nah, we, we made a little something in the unit. I was like, you made a little something in the unit? Inmates making moonshine with limited resources? What, what's happening here? Well, he went on to enlighten me. He said, you know, we take the bread, we take rice and juice and all these other random ingredients. We put it in a soda bottle and they have to leave the soda bottle in the window and they got to monitor it so that the soda bottle don't explode because if it explodes, then they get busted. Anyhow, after whatever period of time that the bottle has expanded a bit, they open it up, they tear the bed, the bed sheet and they use the bed street sheet as a strainer. And ta-da, we got drinking alcohol. It was clear there was gonna be no planning that day, but I could use that as a teaching moment. That day, we spoke about the reality of being incarcerated and him making yet another bad decision by getting drunk in the environment and jeopardizing any privileges he may have had, any favorable work assignment he may have had. And the worst part, he could end up in SEG. He could end up in solitary confinement for a few days. The conversation helped him sober up and segued into learning other coping modalities as his maladaptive coping mechanisms have proven to be counterproductive to say the least. In the correctional environment, they have access to a number of groups that teach them tons of problem-focused and emotion-focused strategies that can help them manage external situations that cause psychological stress, positive or negative. Being able to adjust to stressful events while maintaining emotional well-being is a skill that is compromised by substance abuse and use and trauma and medical and mental illness. My learning through the years from inmates continued. You know, they were vulnerable and they shared aspects of their lives that they were super proud of, as well as aspects that they were ashamed of. I mean, I remember talking with this woman that was like, Connie, I was so high one day. I took a bath in the Johnny pump. And I was like, you did, you did what? She was like, yes, Connie. I took a bath in the Johnny pump. Now, I can't imagine being in public taking a bath in a fire hydrant. Like, where are you in life? How low have you gone that you're taking a bath in a fire hydrant. I mean, I have guys 
talking about, you know, their children reaching these amazing milestones that they weren't around to see, they weren't around to cultivate, you know, like I talked to this girl who's like, you know what, Miss Aline, I've been a whole my whole life. I'm like, you've been a what? I mean, just taken back. She's like, yeah, she said, you know, my mom pretty much would prostitute me for her hits. And then as I got older, I got high with her and then we kind of hold together. And that's how we made money. And that's just, that's just the life that I had. I mean, there aren't really any circumstances where an inmate needs to reveal that kind of information, right? Whether I was a discharge planner or I was the administrator, but they did, you know, you, you got to learn sort of the level of depravity many of them experienced life at, you know. Um, so it's a known fact that inmates lie. I mean, not for nothing, non-inmates lie, right? Um, but inmates lie for like, the stakes are high, the stakes are low. I mean, they throw you on the bus for a honey bun. I mean, somebody promised them some good time. Somebody promises a bottom bunk, an extra mattress. They might lie. You name it, it's on. And that's really what leads me to the understanding of secondary gain. I had no idea about no damn secondary gain before I walked into this environment, but um, I learned much about it while I was there. You know, they come to you with one issue as the face of the encounter, and usually they have something else on their agenda, you know, something else they're angling for. I mean, ulterior motive is what it is, right? When an inmate writes to see a provider, they're usually more, there's usually much more to the initial request. It's rare that there isn't some other driver for a visit. But I mean, I can recall receiving many requests for discharge planning, ending in an inmate asking me for a phone call. I'm like, absolutely not, man. Come on. Like, you're going to, I'm going to let you get me caught up acting like you don't know the rules. You cannot use a non inmate phone that's not being recorded, you know? So within the scope of discharge planning, yes, we call family members, we call friends, we call wives, girlfriends, you name it, right? We call to make sure this person could actually return to that place of residence. You know, we didn't want guys walking out the door being homeless. That was just a fact. You know, we would try to get them reconnected, whether it's family, friends, community-based organizations, inpatient programs, treatment, I mean, homeless shelters, you name it, we did it. As the administrator, though, um, I'd get requests complaining. I mean, they complain about everything under the sun. You know, those requests were triaged and farmed out as appropriate, while others were pushed to the top of the list because, you know, those more savvy inmates knew the keywords to spark action, like suicide, I'm feeling suicidal, or medication, I think I got the wrong meds. Or, oh, you got a bad doctor in a clinic. I mean, to name a few, those are things that have greater implications to the broader organization. And and they were significant. I got one. Miss Aline, this lady you got in a clinic is a quack. And she's fucking up my meds. She got me feeling all jittery and shit, not sleeping. I'm feeling like I'm going to spaz out. I mean, the translation for me is, Miss Aline, you got a new provider in the clinic. And she's doing her, she has her own medication regimen 
and it seems that I'm having some side effects that's making me feel unstable. Or it could be you got a new um, provider in the clinic and she'll know what she's doing. I mean, either way, it's enough to spark action. For me, I need to make sure that I've got all the providers. I got the medication list for review. I've got the health record. I've got notes to understand what was being prescribed, why it was being prescribed, why it was being changed. And and certainly, you know, we now have to call all providers together because we would have this interdisciplinary team meeting where we would talk about these high risk patients. These are the things that's going on with them. You know, is this inmate doctor shopping? Is this inmate trying to just get meds? You know, it could be a medication change because you don't need to be on that med anymore. You know, and forget about if it was a narcotic. I'm going to get tons of um, (laughs) written requests because a narcotic is being changed or being reduced or being taken away. Um, Anyway, all that stuff happens within 48 to 72 hours because I have to meet with the inmate and close the loop on the issue. And despite all the research and coordinating that has to get done, like it just has to get done. There's, it's, there's no debating that. Medication management is always a hot topic. So that would definitely cause for, call for like an investigation. Um, but I mean, honestly, the inmate provider relationship is always a sensitive one to be managed because, you know, the more they manipulate and as that stuff escalates, all that does is create a tidal wave of issues for the provider and the organization. I mean, I meet with the same inmate, let the inmate know this is what's being done. This is why we're doing it. This is how the concerns are being addressed. I mean, I have to put things in writing. I have to like this. There's a laundry list of things that have to be get done to ensure that I have dotted all I's, crossed all T's, and sort of addressed any liability or risk that might have been put out there. Um, but I get I, I get with the inmate, and then she produces another list, right? She got some other stuff that she got concerns about. And, you know, you got things from the officer cursing at them in the units and calling them bitches or calling them names or, you know, you can't go to this group knowing full well the woman needs to get to the group. And if if she goes to the group, then she won't get food, she won't get fed. And so now we're we're putting these disincentives for people to go and get um, the help that they need or the support that they need. Um, And really... As the administrator, I'm looking through this list like, is there any anything that I can just find root cause for and be able to cross all the rest off? And typically, those lists are where we get so much insight, right? You, you get clear insight into what's going on in the unit, how women or men are being impacted in the unit. Um, and I can't ignore any of them whether or not they got medical implications or mental health implications on there or not. Like I now have to take this laundry list of stuff and go talk with the warden and talk with the unit officer or talk with a captain to try to facilitate this discussion so that the issue is addressed. I mean, for a place that is scarce (laughs) of resources, they find a way to be so resourceful. Um, 
So corrections is unlike any other environment. You know, you're challenged to unlearn things that would be customary or normal. So, I mean, I'm one of those people, I smile, I say good morning to everybody. You know, growing up in a West Indian home, your foot dare not hit the floor without you saying good morning to somebody. You come in the house, you say good night, good evening, like you greet people and... You know, my mom didn't accept, no, oh, I'm in a bad mood today. It, it's, it's none of that. So this habit of good morning, good evening, good night, like, it's it's just who I am. And so here I come walking in the environment. And I get it. Some people are just not morning people. They haven't had their coffee yet. They're not interested in your perky good morning, right? Um, but that level of friendliness to everyone, including the inmates, that, that wasn't something that they were like, oh, yeah, we need more of that. They were like, Connie, you need to tone that down a little bit. And I just couldn't understand that, right? Like, this is just who I am. But ultimately, I didn't want there to be one of those moments where they think that I'm being inappropriate with an inmate, you know, or that I was somehow... um showing weakness or opening the gates to anything inappropriate, you know? So I had to find that balance between good morning and smile, like the, to find the right amount of good morning and smile without lingering eye contact so that it wasn't misinterpreted in any kind of way. I mean, it, I guess, you know, here it is. We just take things for granted, Right. Um, so like a pen, for example, I mean, my pen, my desk got pens on it, pencils on it. I mean, that wasn't happening in a correctional environment because they can only use the inside of a pen, not, well, it's equivalent to the inside of a pen, not like a full pen, unless the rules have changed. Right. I mean, all those little short pencils. Right. Um, so take my current office space, for example, I've got photos of my daughter hanging around and her school and calendar with holidays and half days and all this good stuff, right? In the correctional environment, my workspace was completely devoid of anything personal. And it definitely had nothing that would in any way make me vulnerable or would compromise my daughter's safety. Um, Unfortunately, all too often, this is a hard lesson that's learned by new employees. I mean, time and time again, I had this nurse who, I mean, she was working in intake and on her desk was a pencil that said, you know, my child is an honor student at X middle school, right? Uh, See, as city and state employees, your information is open to public consumption because public monies fund our salaries. So the inmate was, you know, the inmate she was working with you know, took note of her first and last name and the school name on the pencil. On another day, the inmate returns to the clinic for a follow-up with a different provider, overhears her talking about her son, mentions his name. A few days later, the nurse gets a call while she's at home. I mean, at home. Informing her that they knew who she was, they knew where she lived and where she worked, and they knew her son X attended X school. If she didn't take a cell phone and drugs into the prison, her son wouldn't be coming home from school that day, the next day. Whether that threat was real or not, 
This person had enough information to follow through on his threat. We never saw that woman again. Like ever. Not only did she quit her job, but she took her children out of their schools and relocated to another state. When she didn't show up for her shift, we had a wellness check done at her home. And that's when we send like law enforcement to the home to make sure the employee is okay, right? And the employee didn't die or something and no one knows. So when the police arrived, the landlord informed the police that the tenant moved out abruptly, citing a life and death situation. Later on, you know, she contacted Department of Corrections and informed them of the threat. They, of course, conducted a full-on investigation and had the security division reviewing inmate phone calls because, I mean, there is zero tolerance for threats to staff. However, the damage was already done. Inmates learn routines. They have absolutely nothing else to do. I mean, nothing else to do with their time but observe. I mean, for crying out loud, their existence is a routine. Wake up, shower, chow, lock up, visits, count, chow, wreck, lights out. There are set times for everything. Custody staff usually work 7 to 3 or 8 to 4, 3 to 11, 11 to 7, you know, 4 to 12, 12 to to 8. I mean... They know when it's change of shift, roll call, when it's someone's past days, when someone is being stuck, like they have mandatory overtime. And like, they know when you're new. I recall walking through the clinic. These two inmates were sitting there and I had one inmate say to the other inmate, oh, she got her petty over the weekend. I'm... In my mind, I was like, what the hell? Then he says, Miss Aline, I like that. I like that French pedicure you got. Your maintenance game is on point. All I could do is just look at this inmate and keep work and keep on moving. Like, the inmate noticed my toenails? Imagine what else they notice and retain. I learned that even saying thank you to a compliment, only sent the wrong message, intended or unintended. I did not ever want to send the wrong message or encourage any inappropriate behavior. I learned that they would try everything. They would try anything possible to establish a rapport with you. So that they could either get a need met or give someone the impression that they have some kind of in with you. These inmates have proven to be quite resourceful, right? And in my mind, I just feel that we can teach them how to channel that resourcefulness, that cleverness in positive directions. I think we take the easy way out sometimes and we throw our hands up and be like, oh, you know what? That's a career criminal. He's done for. And we give up. I don't know how I feel about giving up. 
if it were me or any of my family members, I wouldn't want anyone to give up on them. I mean, if it were you and your family members, should we give up on you? Every person from your past lives as a shadow in your mind. Good or bad, they all helped you write the story of your life and shape the person you are today. No matter what David and Goliath situation you find yourself in, remember the words of Rosa Parks. You must never be fearful about what you're doing when it is right. I hope that I've given you enough to continue a healthy conversation about our incarcerated citizens. Thank you so much for listening as I continue to make my own slice of the world a little better. You have just listened to The Fly Behind the Wall, now available on iTunes, Anchor, Spotify, and other listening platforms. Be sure to subscribe, share, and write a review. Join me next time, Behind the Wall.